Okay, Mark 9, 42 to 49. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. I'm deeply conscious as we turn to consider hell that for all of us there will be particular friends and family members who will be very much in our consciousness and there's two things to say about that really one is uh, every time I found teaching on hell it's a little bit overwhelming for one or two people and that's all right so it may be that one or two will will want to just walk out and have a breather and that's fine don't make it awkward for them and please don't feel awkward if you feel you need to that's uh, when you deal with a serious subject that's sometimes just what happens. Uh, you just feel it's a little bit much. Um, the second thing is that we need to pray. We really need to pray. So let's do that now. Our Father God, I beg you that you would uh, shut my mouth if I say anything that is untrue. I pray that you would help me to only teach what is truly in your word. I pray too that you would uh, help us to be open to the truth of your word. Help us to recognize that none of us already knows everything that is true. All of us currently believe things that are untrue about you. And so all of us need the correction of your word. And so we pray that we would be open now to the ministry of your spirit, driving away false and uh, unhelpful truth and helping us to uh, false and unhelpful ideas and, and leading us solely and fully into your truth. Father, thank you that you haven't changed between the last talk and this one. You remain good, eternally good. And so we pray as we uh, look at your character now as revealed by hell, we would remember that these things are not bad, that you are not bad, but you have proven at the cross that you are good and kind and loving beyond our imagining. Amen. In September 2013, there was an accident on the, the road bridge that goes over the Isle of Sheppey, which is on the Thames. And there are frequently accidents there because you get fog over the road bridge, in the, uh, especially in the autumn, this sort of time of year. And that was, uh, that was to be expected. It was what happened immediately after the initial accident that was really tragic. The other cars approaching the accident hit this bank of fog, but they didn't slow down. And so, bang, bang, 130 cars piled in and smashed into this enormous metallic carnage that was on the bridge. The drivers afterwards uh, said they couldn't see. And they were asked, so why on earth did you keep barreling along at 60 miles an hour if you couldn't see? And they said, well, nobody else was slowing down. Everybody else was was carrying on, and, and so we figured it must be all right. And that brings me to, to Rodan's thinker. I wonder if you, you wondered what on earth was that picture on the front of your booklets. Did you know that the original sculpture 
that Rodan was commissioned to make was to be seated at the gates of hell in a great sculpture of eternal judgment. And the thinker was sculpted by Rodin as seated at the gates of hell, contemplating the fate of those going to eternal judgment. Don't hear that, do you? Great irony. If there's one thing our culture is desperate to do, it is to not think about eternity. If there's one thing our culture is committed to do, it is to not be Rodin's thinker. Because, well, no one else is slowing down. No one else is admitting that they have no idea what lies on the other side of the fog of death. Everybody else is barreling along as if there's nothing to fear. And so we get consumed with just keeping up with the people next to us and going as fast as they are. And it must be all right. There can't be anything too scary on the other side. Otherwise, they'd be slowing down, right? And so we're unprepared as a culture to meet the judgment that lies on the other side of the fog, the judgment of God that lies beyond death. And it seems to me that there are three ways as a culture that we do this, that we ignore the reality of hell. Uh, firstly, we just, we just claim it doesn't exist, that it's, it's simply a hangover of medieval pre-enlightenment human thinking. And, and thankfully, we've moved beyond it. I mean, the news night, panorama, the, the serious what's going on in the world shows where all the great uh, opinion formers and politicians of the day appear. All the great issues that we should be concerned about are debated. Brexit, climate change, radicalization. But when did you see a, uh, a news night where they said, look, uh, tonight we're, we're considering the most serious issue of all, which is, is there going to be an eternal judgment facing each of us after death? And so I'm delighted to invite our panel of speakers. You would never, ever get that show on TV. So we, we just ignore it. We airbrush it out. Or we joke about it. We mock it. We belittle it. So Mark Twain, his famous quote, I want to go to heaven for the climate, but hell for the company. Ha, 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 ha. We make in popular culture hell just a, a silly joke. It's where the cool kids go, where you can do all the fun stuff you're not allowed to do in a church service. Or thirdly, there is a particularly Christian way that we ignore the reality of hell. Uh, Francis Chan, as he um, prepared that video we watched last night and wrote the book Erasing Hell, he observed, deep down in the heart of every person is a hidden desire to reinterpret Jesus in the light of our own culture, political bent or favorite theological belief. And in our culture, what that looks like, that reinterpretation of Jesus, has a particular form. We're a what has often been called a therapeutic culture, in that we are convinced that everything really ought to exist to make me feel good about myself, to be crass and to exaggerate a little bit. But broadly, we, we think anything that doesn't make me feel good about myself is either wrong or can be ignored. And so when we come to the words of Jesus, we reinterpret them and we ignore anything that Jesus says that's hard. In particular, when he talks about hell, well... So Rob Bell um, wrote his famous book, his bestseller, Love Wins, telling us exactly what our itching ears want to hear, which is, in the end, love wins and Jesus will save everybody. So don't worry. Don't worry. There is no hell. Now, books like that, 
they succeed in making us think that God is every bit as agreeable to my, uh, my moral compass as I hoped he would be. But what they fail to do is to listen to what Jesus actually says and to warn about what Jesus actually warns about. Okay, but why does it matter? If hell is unpleasant to think about, and if it's likely to lead some of us to feel very uncomfortable and put some of us in tears this morning, well, isn't it better to ignore it? It's just going to stir up questions about God and, and, and lead to confusion and anguish. Why, why? There's so, much, so many other things in the Bible we could be looking at today. Why not just spend more time thinking about heaven? Well, here's the question. Do you want an authentic relationship with God? Isn't that what we all want, an authentic relationship with God? To have an authentic relationship with God, you need two things. One, you need to feel like you can be yourself with God. You can't have an authentic relationship if you're not yourself. But you need something else for an authentic relationship. You also need to let the other person be who they truly are. If I refuse to deal with God as he reveals himself to take him on the basis of what he says he's like, then there is no authentic relationship. In fact, I'm not really worshipping the Jesus of the Bible at all, but the Jesus of my imagination. And the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus recorded reliably in the words of Scripture, speaks an awful lot about hell. One other thing as we, as we turn to the Bible, please remember why. God teaches about hell. True warnings are kind, not cruel, because the aim of true warnings is that we avoid the thing we're being warned about. That's why there are warnings about cancer on cigarette packs, so you don't get cancer. That's why there are fire alarms, so you don't get burned. And that's why God speaks about hell, so we don't face judgment. Ezekiel 33, God says, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? That is not a God who wants to destroy. It's a God who wants to save. He describes in uh, Isaiah 28, 24, judgment is his strange, his alien work. It's not what he wants to do but it is what he will do. So what will hell be like? When we turn away from the mythology and the silly ideas of uh, medieval art, we find that hell is real and populated by real people, that hell will be marked by unbearable eternal judgment, and that hell will be personally ruled over by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, firstly, hell will be real and populated. Now, Jesus spends uh, quite a lot of his time telling the disciples not to be afraid. Stop being afraid. Stop worrying. Um, don't be afraid that he can calm storms. Don't be afraid of how you provide for yourself if you follow him. Don't be afraid of not knowing what to say if people get brutal and aggressive about you being a Christian. Don't be afraid of what happens when Jesus returns to heaven and sends us his spirit. But there is one point when Jesus says, be afraid. Be very, very afraid. In Luke, 
chapter 12 and verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is not in the business of telling lies. That's just not who he is. He tells us about hell and he warns us. He tells us to be afraid of God's power to condemn eternally because hell is real and awful. The reality of hell is reinforced by the word he uses here, Gehenna. It's the name of a real place. He wants us to get into our heads that it's a real thing, hell. It was a place called the Valley of Hinnom just outside Jerusalem. All sorts of medieval myths have grown up about it. But what we know for certain is it's where the Canaanites, before Israel's invasion, it's where the Canaanites burned their own children to death to worship the wicked, false, demonic god Moloch. And that's the word Jesus uses, is fear being sent to to hell. And the word he uses for hell is the Valley of Hinnom, this an apt byword for a place of utter godless wickedness that deserves destruction. But even if we accept that hell is a real place, there have always been those who, like Cardinal Newhouse, affirm hell exists, but no one is there. Ultimately, Jesus will save every human being, is what people say. And much as we might wish that was true, and I guess all of us long that that would be true, The Bible teaches otherwise. In Acts 1, as Peter talks about what happens to Judas, he says uh, in Acts 1.25, Judas left to go where he belongs. There are people there. Judas is one of them. And so we think, well, okay, maybe Judas and and his wicked angels, uh, the uh, the devil and his wicked angels, maybe, but not normal people, surely. And then we read in 2 Thessalonians 1. It's worth turning this up. 2 Thessalonians 1. As Paul writes about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 20, verse 15, which we read in the first, anyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is not just a topic of doctrinal debate for theologians to wrestle with. It is a real place that is the real destiny of millions and millions of real human beings all who do not turn to Christ. And to deny the reality of hell as much as we might want to is to call Jesus, the most loving human who ever walked the earth, a liar. Either hell is real or Jesus is a liar. Second, and I have to say this is the section I found hardest in preparing, the experience of hell will be unbearable eternal punishment. First, it'll be punishment. That verse in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. He will punish those who do not know God. 
Matthew in his gospel writes uh, the words of Jesus, Matthew 25, 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Hell is God's punishment. Now, you often hear C.S. Lewis's famous statement that the gates of hell are locked on the inside, that, that actually uh, hell is where we suffer the, the natural consequences of turning away from God. We inflict it upon ourselves, if you like. And that's true. There is truth in that. Ultimately, every resident of hell has turned away from God. There are only two possible destinies for eternity, with Jesus or in hell. And there is nobody who's going to be in hell wishing they were with Jesus. So in that sense, everybody chooses hell and the gates of hell are locked on the inside. No one wants to be with Jesus who's in hell. But hell is not just where those who reject God are left to themselves. Hell is also locked by God from the outside. And on the inside of hell is God's punishment. Perfectly just punishment for all the wrong things said, thought and done in this life. But it is God's punishment. Secondly, it's eternal. How long does it last? It lasts forever. That verse we just looked at, Matthew 25, 46, is very important. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Same word for eternal. The punishment of hell will be eternal in the same way that paradise will be eternal for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. A number of theologians have tried to argue that ultimately humans in hell will be annihilated rather than uh, punished consciously, that they'll just cease to exist. So 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says they will be destroyed. Revelation 26 calls it the second death. Only a few weeks ago, the Pope said, yep, people will just cease to exist in hell. Now, the thought of disappearing into nothing uh, might be appalling to a generation that is just desperate to be acknowledged and affirmed by other people. But the reality of what the Bible teaches is far worse. It is eternal, conscious punishment. So those words that we had read from Mark chapter 9. The Lord Jesus says, Mark 9, 48. The worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched, quoting Isaiah's warning of hell. It's eternal now, we struggle to see the justice, if we're honest. And we think, that just, surely, how can you be punished eternally for, for deeds that only lasted a few years in this life? But we do recognize, actually, when we think about it, that an act done in an instant can deserve a very long punishment. So if I stab my wife and kill her in a, in a, in a brutal rage, that is far, far, far worse than dropping litter every day for all of my life. Way worse. The gravity of the offence is not just determined by how long it lasts, but also what is done and who it is done to. And our sins are infinitely punishable because we sin against the infinite God. Its punishment is eternal and, and it is unbearable. In Matthew and chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this. The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thrown outside, banishment for God's presence. Fire and darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the the images. 
in Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, the, the rich man describes himself as being in agony in this fire. Revelation 14, 10 to 11, those who worship the beast rather than God are described as being tormented with burning sulfur day and night and having no rest. Now, again, we need to think about how literally the images are to be taken. I mean, you can't have fire and darkness. Fire brings light. Uh, But even if the images are not literally true, it is very clear that what Jesus is seeking to convey with these images is an experience of unbearable suffering. Jesus wants us to shudder as we read his description of hell. Hell will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, bitter anguish. So awful that in Revelation 6.15, the people of the world cry out to the rocks of the mountain, fall on us, fall on us so we don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. The repeated refrain of Revelation is the dead are judged according to what they've done. The dead are judged according to what they've done. Hell will be justice. So Revelation 20.13 and then uh, 22.12, I will give to each person according to what they've done. So forget Dante and the medieval image of people being tormented by demons with hot pokers and all that nonsense. Hell will be punishment, justice, not gratuitous torture. But even without all that silly nonsense, it will be unimaginably awful. It will be unbearable. And I guess for all of us, a voice rises up inside us at that point and asks, how on earth can that be right and just and fair? I mean, we just don't think, if we're honest, that it's justified that most of the people we've met in our lives should rightfully end up there. I remember a very revealing conversation with a, with a guy at my last church. And he said, he said, look, I just don't think most of my unbelieving friends deserve to go to hell. Otherwise, I'd really you know, be a bit more passionate about evangelizing them. And then he paused and said, but I guess that's because I don't think I deserve it. I mean, how many of us here this morning genuinely, honestly believe that outside of Christ, apart from Christ, what I really deserve for eternity is to be banished to hell. How many of us really believe that about ourselves? Ultimately, the answer to these questions that we have comes in those verses that Liz read for us earlier. Isaiah 55. The Lord says in Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's not like you and me. And the the way that he's not like you and me is that unlike me, God's sense of justice, God's sense of what is right and wrong is not skewed by having a sinful, twisted, fallen heart. And so when there is a gap between what looks right to me and what God's word says is right, where's the problem likely to lie? with the perfect sinless creator or with the fallen sinful human. I don't think hell is fair for other people because I don't think hell is fair for me, if I'm honest. I just can't or won't face up to the reality of how ugly and wicked my heart is and what I truly deserve. That ultimately is the answer. How can hell be fair? The answer is ultimately... Who am I to tell God what to do?
and what makes me so sure that I have a better and a more developed sense of justice than, than God. But let me at least try to help us see why God's verdict might be just. In one sense, the Bible just says, look, God is God. But there are things that uh, the Bible gives us hints to help us understand why that might be the case. Hitler was very devoted to his dogs, especially his favourite Alsatian that he was given just before the Second World, uh, just at the start of the Second World War, called Blondie. His favourite Alsatian. Why do I tell you that? Because when you assess the life of Adolf Hitler, how he treated his dogs really does not matter. How he treated dogs created by God is just rather irrelevant when compared with how he treated humans made in the image of God. When we look around at the people around us and perhaps look at ourselves and think, look, the way that we treat other people, it's not so bad. Hell is just unfair. We forget that actually how I treat people made in the image of God pales into insignificance compared to how I treat God. To reject God, to ignore him, to rebel against him. We just have no idea how serious, how awful, how perverse, how wicked, how damnable that behavior is. God is just. And to go to hell will be to experience the unbearable, eternal, but just punishment he will bring. Thirdly, hell will be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the last thing I want to do is to look at uh, verses that actually fill me with more dread and awe than perhaps any others in the entire Bible. I've often thought, partly because of what Jesus says, that hell is where God is not. And even if we don't buy into the, the silly, unbiblical notion of hell being ruled over by the demons, it's not. It's where the devil and his demons are punished. But even if we don't think that hell is ruled over by the devil, I think in many of us, many of our minds, hell is a kind of anarchy, a chaotic corner of the universe hermetically sealed off from God's rule. And that can't be. God is omnipresent, as we thought about in the first talk. He is everywhere. Jeremiah 23 says, am I, uh, am I only a God far off and not also a God close at hand? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Jeremiah 23, 24. And as we read in Revelation 14, that means he is present even in hell. Revelation 14, 9 to 11. Turn it up. Revelation 14, verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and, is, and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. So should we not talk about hell as being shut out from the presence of God if, if hell is ruled by Jesus Christ. Well, actually, it is true and helpful to speak about it in that way. And Jesus speaks about it in that way. In Matthew 8 and 2 Thessalonians 1, they'll be shut out from the presence of God. He uses exactly that language. Uh, Jesus and Paul often talk in that way. 
But it's important that we understand the reality that lies behind the imagery that they use. So God is present in different places in different ways. He is essentially present everywhere. But as we already thought, he is operationally present in different ways in different places. So he is present to reveal his glorious majesty in heaven. He's not present in the same way on earth. To be sent to hell is to be shut out from the presence of God to bless. It is to be in a place where we never know the smile of God's mercy, but only ever know the wrath of his judgment. Now, it seems to me that the the teaching of these verses, that the punishment of hell takes place in the presence of Christ, is both a comfort and a challenge. It's a comfort. Not a comfort in the sense of, oh, it'll be all right then. Not that sort of comfort. But it is to me a comfort to know that God will not delegate the punishment of people I love in hell to some sadistic demon who will enjoy torturing them forever. No, the punishment that takes place in hell will be carried out under the eye of the one who has scars in his hands. We can trust Jesus and only Jesus to administer, to overrule, to oversee hell for all eternity. I find it a great comfort and enormously important as I contemplate people I love going to hell that the one who rules it ultimately is the one who voluntarily went to hell on our behalf and suffered for us. Hell will be unbearably awful. But the Lord Jesus will ensure that it is not one nanometer beyond justice. There will be no torture. It will be just. But that justice will be terrible. It's also a challenge. It is a comfort in a strange way to know Jesus rules hell is also a challenge. Because we may say, as Jeremiah says to Hananiah in Jeremiah 28, I wish your prophecy that there'll be no judgment was true. I think we should certainly say, as Francis Schaeffer did when he was asked, uh, the great Christian apologist in the 60s, uh, what do you think will happen to um, the unbelievers in hell? And he just put his head in his hands and wept. You know, that's how we should respond. But we must not airbrush judgment and hell out of our understanding of Jesus. Jesus is not embarrassed by hell. He teaches about it more than anybody else in Scripture. And he will rule over hell for all eternity. He is not only the savior of the world, he is also the judge of all mankind. And again and again, when you look at Acts, the presentation of the gospel involves the judgment of God. Jesus Christ has been raised to judge. So repent, Acts 17, Acts 2. Francis Chan says, it is time for some of us to stop apologizing for God and start apologizing to him for being embarrassed by the ways he has chosen to reveal himself. Very convicting words. How do we respond to these truths. Three things as we close. Firstly, have a more exalted view of God. If hell is the just destiny of every human being, unless we trust in Christ and his death for us, then God must be a whole lot more holy than we have ever dared imagine. Sin against him must be far, far, far more serious than we pretend to ourselves. 
than we behave like. And as we see the awfulness of hell, we must realize that the gap between us and God, the reality of God is more transcendent, more holy, more mighty, more blazingly pure than we've even begun to grasp. Have a more exalted view of God. Have greater evangelistic urgency. We've uh, we just spent 30 minutes studying hell and we've all been warned. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, then I beg you, don't walk out of this room until you have. For we do not know when Jesus will return. And you have been warned. Turn to Christ now. You've been warned. But what about your friends and your family and your colleagues? Theologian Derek Kidner says, why else would God pour out threats rather than just immediate judgment unless it is to bring us to our senses and to bring us to his feet? God warns us about hell so that we would turn to him and instead would come to heaven. I was chatting to this uh, chap at my last church. He said that the truth is, if he really believed, I was asking why he didn't tell his friends about Jesus. And he said, because I don't really believe they're going to hell. He said, if I really believed that, I would find a way to tell them. We've heard the warnings. Don't be so heartless as to fail to warn others. Every day that passes, the unbelievers we know are one day closer to facing God's eternal justice. Hell should give us a more exalted view of God, greater evangelistic urgency, and lastly, perhaps most bizarrely, hell should give us deeper joy because this is what you've been saved from. Not sort of giddy, silly, frivolous joy, but deep, intense, awestruck joy as we look at what we deserve and know what it is to be plucked from the mouth of hell and brought to the feast of heaven. It is by grace alone that hell-bound sinners like you and me find ourselves as children of God, and that fuels joy. Feels joy as well as we realize that this, this that we've been looking at, thinking about, sobered by, this is what Jesus Christ endured for you and for me on the cross. The banishment, the fire, the darkness, the agony, the shame, the guilt of sin, all of it was poured on him. And as he swept blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was anticipating hell. As he suffered the flogging, the brutality, the beating, the shaming, those physical sufferings were a picture of the spiritual agonies as hell was poured out upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place so that we might go to heaven. On the cross, he was anguish that you would be joy. He was cast out so that you could be brought in. He was wounded so that you could be healed. He was thirsty so that you could drink and be satisfied. He was tormented so that you could be comforted. He was cast into darkness that you might dwell in eternal light. 
He was loaded down with guilt and with shame so that you could be forgiven and cleansed. He wore a crown of thorns so that you could wear a crown of glory. He was surrendered to hell's very worst so that you could enjoy heaven's very best. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I could cry out, Abba, Father, and be welcomed home. Our Father God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ went to hell so that we might not. As we struggle with with your character, as we wrestle with troubling thoughts about you, Help us to see very clearly that we are not neutral in this matter, that hell is where I justly belong and heaven is only because of your grace and only because your son went to hell for me. Help us to see the reality, the truth of hell, to fear your judgment and to love your salvation. Amen.